0: I want you to think about two questions with me that relate to some foundational realities of what it means to be a human. To what extent does the approval of other people drive what you do every day? So to what extent does the approval of others drive what you do? Secondly, to what extent does the keeping up of appearances drive what you do? So at the one level, wanting approval from others, how does that affect you? And at another, the image that you want to project, how does that inform just basic decisions that you make in life? For instance, when you buy a book, or you consider buying a book, don't you look at the front cover and then you turn it over to see who else has endorsed it? The the power of social media with a, a like or an image that you're trying to present Or consider the fact that you stood before your wardrobe today and you made decisions about what you were gonna wear. And in some cases, it was what was comfortable and maybe fit well. In other cases, what was cool. Don't you have shoes that you wear that aren't very comfortable because you like how they look? Don't you have things in your wardrobe that you choose because of the image that it portrays? The issue of approval and appearances is fundamental to our humanity. In some respects, there's something good about it. In other respects, there's something tragically wrong with it. In John chapter seven, we see approval and appearances as a controversy that is not only common, but one that Jesus speaks into. The narrative that we're in today takes two stories that happen in two different sections with two different groups of people struggling with two different issues that all have the same root problem. And that root problem is the issue that John is trying to get to over and over and over and over. It's the problem of unbelief. And what John's gonna do is link two stories, one about Jesus's brothers and another about these crowds in Jerusalem He's gonna show you the problem of seeking the approval of the world. He's gonna show you the problem of keeping up of appearances and help you to see that the approval of the world and the appearance that you want to present to people often serve as a huge barrier to belief. In other words, there's some of you who don't believe yet in Jesus because you're trying to take a polling data or you're worried about what it communicates if you say, I'm a follower of Christ. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, the problem of unbelief doesn't go away when you initially put your faith and trust in Christ because every week you face temptations. I face temptations. Am I gonna do this because of what others think? Am I gonna do this because of what I wanna present? Or am I living for the glory of Jesus and Jesus alone? That's what this text is about. The way in which Jesus Penetrates the issue of approval and how it obliterates the penchant to keeping up appearances. Let me show you this in the text. First, this matter of approval. We, we find in John chapter seven that Jesus is in Galilee. He's in the area where his family lived. The text tells us that he would not go to Judea, that's where Jerusalem was, because there were people seeking to kill him. The reason they were seeking to kill him, as we'll see in a moment, is because Jesus had healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Verse 2 tells us, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. So a couple things you need to know. First of all, this text is about Jesus' brothers. He had four brothers. After Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Mary and Joseph had children. Uh, their, Their names were Joseph, Simon, Jude, and James. James is important, particularly, because he eventually will become the pastor of the church of the city of Jerusalem. Major, major influencer in the early church, and he will write one of the New Testament books that we have that bears his name. At this moment in the calendar year, it is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of three major festivals or pilgrimages that Jewish people would go on throughout the course of the year, and it was designed to celebrate and memorialize the wilderness wanderings from the Old Testament and the way in which God had provided for his people. And what would happen is that if you lived in this country, you would come to the city of Jerusalem and you would set up a booth. Think of it like a tent. So if you're a camper, just know you're godly, right? It's like whole festivals designed to, 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 to facilitate your ec- outdoor experience. And if you lived in the city, you'd construct a, a little tent on the top of your roof and this festival would last for seven days. There'd be sacrifices that would be offered and then it would culminate with a large uh, festival gathering at the end. So this, this festival is happening. So thousands of people are pouring into the city of Jerusalem And therefore, Jesus' brothers tell him, leave here, don't stay in Galilee, go to Judea, go to Jerusalem, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. So he he tells them, don't stay here, there's thousands of people in Jerusalem, go. Now, why did they say this, we don't know. It could be that they are aware that Jesus' disciples, a number of them have just left him. Remember last week we learned that if you were here, that Jesus had these disciples and when he had really hard things to say to them, they abandoned him. It may have been that it just was logical for the brothers to give Jesus this advice so he could capitalize on the opportunity that exists in the capital city. This is where the crowds are. If you wanna launch a movement, if you wanna have influence in the culture, you gotta go to where the people are and there's a festival happening so it just makes sense for you to go there. These brothers are suggesting that in order for Jesus to accomplish his mission, he needs to do something to gain the approval of the masses. They have seen what he can do. They've seen his miracles. They know how the world works. A miracle worker who goes to Jerusalem and starts doing miracles in one of three festivals throughout the course of the year, this will launch Jesus' ministry. That's how the world works. You need masses of people to believe in you if you're legitimate. Now, you might think that it's not only logical, verse four says as such, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That makes complete sense from a human perspective. If you do these things, then show yourself to everyone. If the text just stopped there, you might think, my goodness, these brothers are actually believers in Jesus. They're giving him advice. Jesus, we believe in you. We see your miracles. We know what you can do. Go and tell everybody, because this message is unbelievable. And yet John tells us that's exactly opposite of what was happening here. Look at verse 5. He says, it's so fascinating that John says that this, for not even his brothers believed in him. Oh, that's interesting that means that what they just said was not a sign of their faith, it actually was a sign of their lack of faith. It means that what the brothers had just suggested, as wise and as smart as it seemed from a worldly perspective, as true as it had been a hundred times with other people who had done other sorts of movements, it was actually a sign of their unbelief. Now John puts this here along with this other story because he wants to highlight a particularly dangerous barrier that stands in the way of belief. John wants us to see that our unbelief, listen, can hide underneath our pragmatism. By that, we can hide our unbelief underneath things like Everyone knows this is how it works. If the masses don't believe in you, you're never going to change the world. Little do his brothers know that Jesus is gonna change the world by dying alone. See, this is the backwards way that Jesus works. He takes what human beings would normally consider to be successful and he flips it on its head in order to confound worldly wisdom and to humble human beings and to remind us over and over and over, human ways don't work. That's what we saw last week. The flesh is of no help at all. And the flesh can take on its form in terms of a, a personal decision or it can take its form of the assessment of the masses of people and saying, if you want to launch a movement, this is the way you should do it. Jesus responds by telling them that they are overly connected to the world. Jesus says in verse six, my time has not yet come, but notice this indictment, but your time is always here. What does he mean? He means you think in a way that doesn't fit with my plans. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In other words, he's telling them that you're part of the broken system of the world, and as right as your advice seems in the moment, it actually is not only wrong, it's a symptom of your unbelief. Can you think of times, if you're a Christian, can you think of times in your life when a step of faith that you took was at the time a step that made no sense to the people around you? A few moments ago I talked about giving and generosity. Generosity makes no sense. You're you're giving away money that you could use And you're doing so because of a belief and a promise that God is going to meet your needs. So on paper, generosity doesn't make sense. If you just want your balance sheet to line up, if you want your numbers to go up and to the right, giving money away doesn't help that. Unless there's another economy underneath. Unless there's someone else who controls the stock market. Unless there's someone else who controls your promotional access at work unless there's somebody else who dictates what your boss or your uh, employer thinks of you. And when you're in a meeting and something within you says, I gotta assert my rights, because that's the way everybody's getting ahead around here, you got a decision to make. You gonna live like everybody else or you gonna live by a different system? You see, this, is just, this just isn't the way that it works once in the New Testament. This is the way of Jesus. He says to his brothers, they're not thinking rightly. He says in verse 8, you go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. The brothers here were guilty of unbelief. They craved the approval. They wanted Jesus to be approved, and so they brought their unbelief into a marketing strategy, a political strategy. This is the way you change the world. This is the way the world changes the world. Oh, how tempting it is, friends. Not everything that comes out of the world's system is inherently wrong or sinful, but what we need to be reminded that if our trust is in the way that the world works, we can be very much guilty of unbelief. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me caution you. You can allow the approval of others to rule you. You could not say what you should say. You could go along and laugh because that's what everybody else is doing. You could jump into the culture of your neighborhood, of your locker room, of your office, of your extended family. And you can begin to have a mindset, this is just how things are. Will other people approve of what I'm doing? You may look around and say, who else is acting obediently? No one. Why do I have to be the only person who stands out? And in that moment, you have a decision to make. Are you gonna fall into unbelief? You're gonna believe. If you're not yet a Christian, this text is specifically written with you in mind. John's trying to lay before you the call to believe, and he's showing you a barrier to your belief. What is that barrier? Here's the barrier. The barrier is you look around and you wanna know who are all the other Christians who I respect, who also believe, so that when I believe, I will be respectable too. Because I don't want to be part of some fringe group that believes in some Jesus of Nazareth from 2,000 years ago if it isn't the cool thing to do. And you can approach coming to Christianity because you're polling around to see who else believes. Mm. There comes a point when the calculating, the polling, and the researching has to stop. There comes a point when you have to say, I'm walking away from the approval of others and I live for the approval of one, his name is Jesus. And that walk is how you become a Christian. John wants you to see though that there are people who are guilty of unbelief and it's couched in the approval of man. So that's like a worldly system. Let's talk about a spiritual system. So John now links a story with Jesus in Jerusalem. Look what happens. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. So his brothers go up and then Jesus goes. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. So there's this controversy that's going on in the city of Jerusalem, in one of the most important feasts throughout the course of the calendar year. And now we see verse 13, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So he was like, there's this muttering going on, but no one is talking about him openly, but all kinds of people are talking about Jesus. 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, what's fascinating is John doesn't tell us what he said. And the reason is because this particular paragraph, this little section, is not just about what Jesus taught. It's about the effect of what Jesus taught. That's the point. The Jews therefore, verse 15, marveled saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? You see, Jesus didn't come from the right schools. He didn't train under the right rabbi. He was a a person who was teaching and he hasn't come from all of the the, the right backgrounds. doesn't have the the pedigree that gave somebody standing in their culture. Jesus answered them and he he says three things here. Number one, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. So notice the the deflection that Jesus will embrace. He won't talk about himself, but instead saying, this teaching that I have, it isn't mine. It is his who sent me. So the the thing about Jesus that you're gonna see is he is not full of self-glory. His aim is to glorify the Father. Everything about his life will be for the glory of someone else. And what John wants you to see is everything about the world system is about the glory for me. And sometimes that takes its shape in terms of of approval of others, and sometimes it takes its shape in religious systems in order to keep up appearances. And that's what we're looking at here. Verse 18, or verse 17, Verse 17, if someone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God and whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, what he says to them is, you don't know and you don't understand because your will is broken. And then he says, the one who speaks, verse 18, on his own authority, seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is saying there's a difference between me and you. You use your own authority to speak for your own glory, but I am seeking the glory of him who sent me, and therefore what I'm telling you is true. So the brothers wanted the self-exaltation that came with the crowds, but these people in Jerusalem They wanted the self-exaltation that came with the appearance of obedience. They're at a feast. They're offering sacrifices. And Jesus just told them that they have wrong wills. And then he says this. In verse 19, he says... Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Wow. He's talking to the most religious people of the day at one of the most religious festivals of the entire calendar year, and he has the audacity to tell them that they don't keep the law. Can you imagine what it was like, there? these people were at this festival they're doing all sorts of religious things that people do at festivals they're gathering in God's presence they're offering sacrifices they're having celebrations they've left their homes they've built I mean they're living in tents for crying out loud and what Jesus is telling them is they attend the festival but their hearts are far from God Aren't you glad this stopped in the first century? Because after all, no one comes on Sunday. There's nobody here today who came because they're worried that people would notice that they were gone. There's nobody who sang the last 30 minutes saying, you are worthy, meanwhile thinking, what do they think about me? What do they think about me? What do they think about me? The challenge with established religion, the challenge with even our gathering here today, is that we can actually use the thing that was supposed to draw us to God as a thing to project righteousness to other people. We can actually, we can use our knowledge of the Bible not as a means of worship, we can use it as a means to impress people. You can be in a Sunday school class or a small group and someone says a verse and they're like, I think that's in John 7. And you're like, mm, actually it's John eight thirty-two. And you say that not to help the brother but because you want everyone in the room to know you just chapter and verse the thing. <laughs> you wanna be like, mic drop, see ya. Because you wanna be known as a spiritual person. Jesus in John chapter five says this when he's at the pool of Bethesda, he says this, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is speaking into a problem that exists in his day and exists in ours. It's the trap, listen to me, of self-righteousness. And in order for self-righteousness to thrive, it needs two things as its fuel. First, it needs other people to look down upon, and it needs other people to look at you and think you're something that you're not. That's where self-righteousness thrives. It needs judgmentalism to look at other people and go, oh, can you believe that they do that? and it needs other people to look at you and go, wow, can you believe they do that? And what happens in this context is that Jesus is going after their need, not just for approval, but their need to keep up appearances of righteousness. He says to them, why do you seek to kill me? They answer him, you have a demon, who is seeking to kill you? Jesus then takes them back to the moment when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. What happened was there was this man who was an invalid and he encountered Jesus. Jesus told him to take up his cot. He healed him and as he's walking on the Sabbath day with his cot, a Pharisee confronts him, he's like, why are you carrying a cot? He's just healed. And he says to the Pharisee, that man told me to pick up my cot. And they're like, who is he? They don't even care. He's been healed. This man healed him. All they see is cot, cot, cot. Other than you see, he's carrying a cot. He's carrying a cot. You can't carry a cot on the Sabbath. You can't carry a cot on the Sabbath. Why? Because if he carries cots on the Sabbath, the whole system of righteousness is gonna collapse. And what is the problem with that? If that thing collapsed, then we've got no standing. We've got nothing to beat our chests over, nothing to look down on other people with, and no way for us to feel better about ourselves. If that cot thing keeps going, we won't be righteous. That's the issue. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it, and then Jesus goes for the jugular. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Oh. See what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is saying this. You're willing to take one part of the body and do something so that it becomes spiritually pure through circumcision and you think that's righteous. And you don't care if a person is circumcised on the Sabbath but when I heal someone's whole body, you're worried about cots. These Pharisees, these Jews are concerned that the Sabbath was being broken. They're so concerned about external issues that they're missing everything. And as a result, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Why is Jesus so controversial? He's controversial because he's pressing in on the Achilles' heel of pride. The pride, first of all, that if you're really gonna change the world, you gotta do things like it's done in the world. There's masses of people in Jerusalem. Jesus, stops staying here in Galilee and saying things and then ticking people off healing people and then not doing anything with it. If you wanna change the world, do what people are supposed to do. Go to Jerusalem, make yourself known to the world, that's the way you do it. And Jesus says, that's unbelief. The religious establishment says, you can't be healing people on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. You can't do these works. You don't have authority. And what school did you come from? And who gave you the authority to say this? And they have no idea that standing right in front of them is the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and their whole system of how they understand religiosity is going to be blown up right in front of them because they don't understand the essence of what Jesus is about, which is taking the issue of pride to the woodshed. And what John wants us to see is that underneath the approval of others and underneath the appearances that we want to project to people is the issue of unbelief. So Christian, let me apply this to you. Be careful when the pragmatism of what works by worldly and cultural standards starts to affect your approach to Christianity. Just because it works out in the marketplace doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it's supposed to work in the context of the kingdom of God. Not that everything in the marketplace, and everything in the world, and everything outside of the church is wrong. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if we're honest, that can become our trust. And we end up spending more time thinking about the way that it's done out there than what it means to get on our face and say, we need to know what God wants us to do because there's plenty of stories and example in the New Testament and the Old where the people of God did something that made no sense. In fact, faith doesn't make sense. Can I challenge you, Christian, to be careful about how you're allowing the approval of other people who don't know Jesus to dictate your life? Can I also encourage you that you not allow a religious system to become a crutch upon which you prop up an image of what it means to be a religious person? You know, don't you? You can use this church. You can use your Bible. You can use your small group. You can use a Sunday school class. You can use your knowledge to project an image that you're righteous when behind the scenes you know you're not. And by the way, keeping up those appearances is exhausting. What's the solution? The solution is to be filled with the wonder at how Jesus in himself gives us the approval that we so desperately need. You see, you don't need to be keeping up appearances when you've been captured by his grace. So rather than hearing Jesus' statement where he says, No one keeps the law, instead of being offended by that, you ought to go, That's right. <laughs> Wicked sinner, right here. Broken. Parents, when your kids act in a way that fits with their fallen nature and you are suddenly fearful, what does that say about me? What does that say about me? What does that say about us? They're gonna think we're bad parents. News flash, everyone's bad parents. (laughs) We just happen to see it in this moment with you and your kids. So rather than getting angry and mad, not just because your kids are disobedient but because what it says about you, you need to slay that with, I know what Jesus knows about me and I am not a perfect person but I know his grace. When you make a mistake at work and people look at you and they're like, dude, you totally bombed on that, rather than making some sort of, 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 of justification for it, or like, well, what about you? What about your presentation last week? That was terrible. You start going there. What about your thing? What about you? You start doing that, you've suddenly imaged everything that's antithetical to the gospel. Instead, to embrace the humility that now you have because of who you are in Christ. When you've sinned, and hurt somebody, and they've done things wrong too? Instead to embrace the full cup of what you've done and not living your life conditioned on if they're gonna own their stuff too. So when we're tempted to fall back into approval or when something challenges your penchant for keeping up appearances, friend, that's the time. Christian, you need to embrace the finished work of Jesus. Remember, when those moments happen, all that you're doing is what Christians are supposed to do, which is simply to believe in Jesus over and over and over. We need to slay the approval of men by reincorporating our belief in Jesus. We need to slay our penchant for religious appearances by reaffirming again and again, I believe in Jesus. Now to those of you who are not yet Christians and you're on a spiritual journey, let me just ask you to consider the implications of what is here because John wrote this very chapter for you. He wrote, John 20 tells us, he's written these things so that you might believe, you might know the works that Jesus did, believe and by believing have life in his name. Here's the bottom line. You could spend the rest of your life looking around, trying to add up, count the noses of people who believe, and figuring out, is this the right time to believe? Is this the right time to believe? Do people approve of me believing? What if I believe? What's gonna happen with other people? What about what people think of me, and all these other things? And you do that, there will never be a time that you have enough information to believe. Because your pride will always convince you, it's the next day, it's the next day, it's the next day, it's the next day. day. I gotta find more information, more books, more research, this, 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 and this. And underneath all of it all is this prideful pursuit that you gotta know before you trust. And Jesus says, "Mm mm-mm. Because your perception of your ability to know actually is rooted in self-exaltation. Because if that's how you came to faith in Christ, then the story would be, I figured it out instead of I was leveled and I was so humbled and I just saw my sin and I looked at Jesus and he rescued me. The brothers didn't see it because they wanted the approval of the world. The Jews didn't see it because they loved their religious system and they worried about the appearances. And until people get over the approval of the world and the appearance of what they communicate, they'll never come to faith in Christ. And that's what John's message is, but it doesn't have to be the way. John says, I write these things so you can see who you are, so you can believe, and when you believe, you have life in his name. That's why John writes. That's the same gospel that's available to anyone who would come today and receive Jesus because Jesus has the power to slay human pride, whether it's approval or keeping up appearances, and give us grace. Won't you pray with me? Actually, rather than I pray for you, why don't you pray for you? you're a follower of Jesus today, would you just spend a moment and talk to God about the problem of approval and appearances? Could you just rehearse the last six days and ask yourself, where is approval and my concern for how I looked? How do those things take over? And would you just bring Jesus into them today and say, Lord, forgive me. And the Bible promises that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just he'll, just, he'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You just pray over your desire for approval and appearance and say, Jesus, help my unbelief in these areas. And if you're here today, not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe today is the day. The, the the line where, where you say today, Lord, I'm done, I'm done. I'm putting my faith, my trust in Christ today. I'm gonna to be named among those who call themselves followers of Christ. So Holy Spirit, we know what you want to do in our lives. You wanna take this text and you want to apply it in many more ways than I could ever imagine. You wanna use the context of this Sunday, you want to use this sermon, you want to use our singing in order to say something to us and so help us to listen and more than that Lord, give us hearts that can listen we pray this in Jesus name Amen